Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Leviathan Chronicles. An audio adventure. Chapter 2. A Secret Unfolds. New York City, today. A slender young woman with auburn hair sprinted up a small campus hill towards Founders Hall at Rockefeller University on York Avenue. The M15 bus that McCallan Orsall typically took from her East Village apartment was delayed by construction around Bellevue Hospital and left her stressed, frazzled and late. McAllen had a great affection for the unique institution of Rockefeller University. It was a bucolic oasis in the middle of midtown Manhattan. It had its own gardens, tennis court, and overlooked the East River. But more importantly, it was one of the most advanced medical and scientific research institutions in the world. Founded by John D. Rockefeller in 1901, its mission has always been the advancement of theoretical and advanced research and experimentation. Rather than being a factory for producing orthopedic doctors and plastic surgeons, Rockefeller University functioned as a premier think tank for the best and brightest medical students in the country. It had also been the center of McAllen Orsall's life for the past six years. She gave a hurried wave to the security guard that stood post at the gated entrance on York and 64th Street. Once inside Founders Hall, she frantically pushed the elevator button to take her to the fifth floor where the genetic research department was housed. I know, I know, don't say it. Don't need to. Medical Provost Reiner wanted to see you in his office as soon as you get in. He's going to bitch you out for being late a lot better than me teasing you. Shit, seriously? He noticed I wasn't here? No, I think he noticed your speech on primordial genetic mutation for his second years wasn't on his desk by the end of the day yesterday like you promised. I think that's what's got him looking for you. Are you on his side or mine? I'm on the side that keeps me employed and enjoying benefits of research grants. Lest you forget, we're not all independently wealthy like you. I'm not wealthy. I'm quite broke, actually. I'm sorry. Then we don't all come from rich families that don't share with us because we're bad daughters. I'm a great daughter. I just come from a strong lineage of outcasts from the family fortune. Trust me, Jimmy. We're on the right path. We're going to make an evolutionary breakthrough in genetics, and we'll have every foundation in the world breaking down our doors, trying to offer us research laboratories and crazy supercomputers. Dude. I'd settle for a place where we don't have to pay a vending machine for rat-gut coffee every morning. Stick with me, and I'll get you one of those fancy coffee makers with the pod cartridges. And I'll be your sexy little caffeine whore. I know you will. We'll put your coffee maker next to the waffle maker that you'll use every morning for me. Oh, really? Yes. Really. Oh, God, Jesus, I don't want to go into Reiner's office. I could easily... 
oh my god, wait, I forgot, the sequencing modeling. Did you check it this morning? I thought you'd never ask. Don't gloat, just tell me, were we right? Yes. Look here, the telomeres were lengthened in the flatworms by 600%. That would extend their lifetimes by at least three and a half times. But McAllen, it wasn't a clean run. Cancerous cell activity also increased by over 300%, as well as other genetic mutations. In the simulation, we got our worms to live longer, but the extra time they got was riddled with sickness and complications. I wouldn't call it a success, but but I think we have made some important steps. Damn right we did. 600% increase in telomere regeneration activity? You have to rerun the simulation again, but this time input an iodine compound to track the free radical migration and isolate the decrepitude. We can't do it, McAllen. The simulation you're talking about will take over 18 hours. If Reiner finds out, he'll napalm your grant, demote me, and probably sell our research to a Korean think tank to pay for his new Jaguar. Come on, Jimmy. You know I'll make it worth your while. Right. How late did you stay here last night working on the simulation? Until about three hours ago. No wonder you're late. Hello? She'll be right in. That was your other boyfriend. He'd like to see you in his office right away. Great. That's all I need in my life, another cranky boyfriend. Good morning, McAllen. Sit down. Thank you, Dr. Reiner. McAllen, please tell me what in the Holy Lord's name is wrong with you. I'm sorry? What do you mean? You know exactly what I mean. You look exhausted. You've been neglecting your duties as a teaching assistant. I heard two weeks ago you didn't even show up to your Thursday morning class. The damn graduate students were playing broom ball in the hallway waiting for you to show up. Those students are so stupid. No! You are so stupid for pissing away a prestigious grant on a pipe dream of science fiction instead of focusing on concrete research. Sir, the Letterfield grant allows for funding in the field of the recipient's choosing as long as it furthers the advancement of cellular biology. And using it for a genetic code-breaking exercise that's spitting out a bunch of gibberish that nobody understands. I understand it. We've made progress. And cellular biology is directly correlated to the human genetic oh, code. Oh, please, don't give me this thigh bone is connected to knee bone horse shit. I could call in the grant, McAllen. I could do it. I've got a report on my desk that shows you've been logging in for unauthorized use on the mainframe, running huge simulations and draining resources from the other department. I did have authorization. For three hours? You took nine. You're acting like you work at this university alone using any resources you see fit, neglecting your duties, siphoning off distinguished research grants to serve your own purposes. It's pretty sad, McAllen. It's sad for two reasons. One, you seem to have forgotten that the primary mission of this institution is to give back and return the scientific knowledge that we've been privileged to learn for the benefit of society. And second, you're throwing away a lot of promise and a career that I had previously taken an interest in nurturing. What greater good can we offer society than if we discovered the key to unlocking telomeres that- McCallan. Look, I don't need this. I don't need well, your lecturing. Well, you clearly need something. Whatever's fueling your obsessions isn't- Excuse me. Excuse you? Hello? Sedgwick? What is it? Yes, of course. What's wrong with her? Are the delusions returning? Yes, I'll be right over. No, no, right now. Dr. Orsel, where are you going? McAllen! I'm sorry, Dr. Reiner, I'm sorry. But, but I have to go. McAllen Orsel hailed a cab on York Avenue outside Rockefeller University and gave the cab driver an extra 20 to step on it to get to 1076 Fifth Avenue, where her grandmother had resided for the past 20 years. The uniformed doorman gave McAllen a familiar nod 
and another uniformed man operated the ornate elevator cabin that took her to the 15th floor. She exited the elevator. McAllen, thank you for coming so quickly. Please, Sedgwick, my grandmother we're talking about. Of course, come in. I know she wants to see you right away. She's in a bit of a state, I fear. McAllen entered the exquisitely marbled foyer of the classic Candela pre-war apartment. Although she moved to her grandmother's majestic apartment when she was 12, she always marveled at the enveloping richness of it. Large, iron-paned windows overlooked Central Park, and the ceiling was bordered by deep Baroque mouldings. It seemed like every corner of the expansive apartment was inhabited by delicate French antique tables draped in royal velvet. The apartment was, in short, regal, and Amelia Orson, McAllen's nana, was its queen. McAllen always felt safe there, allowing the thick walls of the apartment to protect her from the turbulence of her life on the outside, and especially of what happened to her parents so many years ago. Her safety and comfort was also enhanced by the presence of Sedgwick, her nana's butler for as long as she could remember. McAllen came to live with her nana when she was 12. Both of her parents had been reported missing and later dead while on a marine archaeology expedition in the remote southern Pacific near Pitcairn Island. Living with her nana meant being subject to her strict regimen of academic excellence. McAllen was constantly reminded that she descended from a long line of scientists and that high expectations were reserved for her. However, much of the warmth in her life in Nana's apartment was provided by Sedgwick, the best friend a young girl or grand dame could ask for. He stood almost grotesquely tall at almost six foot eight, and his skin was the darkest brown could be without being black. And although he was painfully slender, McCallum was always amazed at his strength when he lifted furniture around the apartment to suit Nana's constantly changing tastes, or when he shook McCallum's hand. But when she looked at him, she mostly saw the wise gentleness of his Gujarati Indian descent. He always remembered that McAllen liked her salmon salad sandwiches with lettuce chopped within, and her breakfast bacon served slightly limp. He cared for her like his own child, but always remained appropriately distant, yet never cold. Hearing his voice and seeing him guide McAllen into the living room felt warm and familiar despite the sad circumstances of her visit. McAllen's grandmother had been deteriorating in health for almost a year. Her decline was particularly agonizing to watch because it was her mental capacity that seemed most affected. Her body seemed to be healthy, notwithstanding the usual minor infections or colds with which someone Nana's age would be afflicted. Some weeks were better than others, but for most of the past year, Amelia Orsall was bedridden and subject to intense hallucinations and delusions. On the way to the living room, McCallum passed her favorite painting in the apartment that hung in the foyer. This was quite a statement, considering the company that the painting was keeping, among a Monet, a Raphael and two Pinini. The oil painting, which was dated 1885, portrayed an older woman, perhaps in her late 60s, sitting beside a table strewn with heavy leather books, candles of different lengths, as well as several strange-looking flasks and colored bottles. The woman seemed more confident than most women depicted in that era. She was maternal, but seemed to carry an imperial demeanor over the items and accoutrements that lied before her. Her gaze seemed to convey a conspiratorial amazement. When McAllen saw it, she immediately thought that this must have been one hell of a woman. Over the years, McAllen's affection for the painting grew exponentially when she learned that it was the portrait of her great, 
great-great-grandmother, literally her Nana's grandmother. I love looking at this painting. It always makes me smile, even when I'm sad. You've always loved it. I can't believe how much Nana looks like her grandmother. It's uncanny. Look at their eyes. It's like they were sisters. You can see them in front of me now. You forget that you all share the same eyes. All Orsal women are blessed with emeralds to see from. I see you haven't forgotten how to flatter a woman. How is she, Sedgwick? She's been fading in and out, but I fear she's growing weaker. It's been rather downhill since the beginning of the week. In fact, she had a difficult time recognizing me these last few days. Has she been taking her olanzapine? Did you make her take it? Of course, but the beneficial effects of the medication seems to be lessening. I won't lie, it's been getting worse, McAllen. Today was the first time she actually lost consciousness. How long? About three hours. You should have called me sooner. But typically, Madame Orso despises being fussed over, despite the fact that her health is in danger. But this time, this was different. When she regained consciousness, she began repeating your name, almost like a mantra. My name? Well, mostly. What do you mean? Well, bear in mind that she was in the throes of delirium, but after repeating your name over and over, her voice would fall to a whisper, and she would say the word, Leviathan. Do you have any idea what she could have meant by that? I have no idea, Sedgwick. Hmm. Come. She's in her bedroom. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Nana? McCallan? Is it you, dear? I'm so glad you are here. I am. I'm right here, Nana. Can you feel me squeezing your hand? My hand? Yes, Nana, your hand. Can you feel me? It's hard. I... 
I... Yes, now I can feel you. Oh, McAllen, I've missed you. There's so much to tell you. I'm getting stronger, you know. I know, Nana. You're going to be better soon. Oh, not better, McAllen. Stronger. <laughs> I... I can't quite see you. It, it's hazy, but I can feel you. I know you're with me. Oh, McAllen, I'm so glad you're here. I don't feel like there's as much time anymore. You have plenty of time, Nana. Stop talking like that. You just said you're getting better. I mean, stronger. This is going to pass. We just need to change the medication that you're on. Callan, darling, you're so special. So special. I think you're special, Nana. And we're going to get through this? You need to understand how unique you are. I mean it, McAllen. You are so special. McAllen. 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 Stay with me, Nana. Don't lose yourself. Try to focus on my voice. Yes. Your voice. Your voice. There's no one like you. There's so much, McAllen. So much of it. So much of what? What? Um... You said that there's... Oh, McAllen. McAllen. <laughs> How are you, my girl? I'm fine, Anna. I'm fine. How are things at the university? They're fine. I mean, not fine. Difficult. But I don't want you to worry about that. How is your research progressing? Have you isolated the telomere stem cell? I'm seeing some progress. I'm not getting any help from the university, and I think they're going to cancel my grant... But I think I'm getting close to finding the aging gene. I know it would revolutionize treatment of so many conditions, including... Well, I could make you feel better, Nana. God, I feel like I'm so close. I can't hold on much longer. You'll need to find the key, McAllen. <laughs> My special McAllen. <laughs> the key. Nana, stop scaring me. You're going to be fine. Even if I can't find a cure or a key, you need to fight now. Do you know if... I mean, have they... Oh, no. Stop. Where... Nana, do you hear my voice? Can you understand me? Yes, dear. I think I can. It's hard when there's so many of them. So many of whom? The voices. Nana, what is Leviathan? What did you say? I said... What is Leviathan? They couldn't have found you. I said you were special. Nana, what are you saying? Who? So dark. McAllen, it's so dark and so cold. No one knows how deep. So deep. So deep. Stay with me, Nana. But Amelia Orsall, McAllen's beloved Nana, did not stay with her. She closed her eyes to yield to unconsciousness. Her rapid breathing gave McAllen assurances that this would not be the night of her passing. She was still very much alive, but McAllen could also see by the degree of her delusions that the end was not far off. McAllen was shaken to see her Nana, a source of such great strength and resolve, an accomplished scientist in her own right, the one who taught her that anything was possible now lay in her bed, biding her time until passing. McAllen felt her throat begin to tighten, 
and she let go of her nana's hand and walked to the living room. It's so sad, Sedgwick. I know how much seeing her like this must hurt you. May I prepare a pot of tea for you? You're so kind, Sedgwick, yes. Please. Jasmine or Darjeeling? I think you should know the answer to that by now. Jasmine, of course. I'll just put the pot on. It struck McCallum for the first time that very soon her life would be without Nana in it. It was like the first time you glanced at your parents and noticed that they looked older and frailer. Nana had always seemed old physically. McCallan had her perpetually aged at 65 throughout her life, but her Nana's spirit had remained indomitable. McCallan relied on that strength when she lost her parents. Nana had taken her in, and the two of them lived together at the Fifth Avenue apartment with Sedgwick doting on them. Nana didn't offer them maternal warmth that her own mother had, but she gave McCallan something different, a security of sorts, not financial, although that was a comfort. Although Nana was extremely wealthy, she had been steadfast not to spoil McCallan. When McCallan attended an affluent private prep school in Manhattan, she felt confused watching her classmates of lesser means take cabs and even limousines to school in the morning while she was relegated to public transportation. McCallan had been raised frugally, but she was never left wanting for the important things in life. She attended the best schools and received a brand new Volvo station wagon when leaving for Wellesley. But the security that Nana offered was that she would always be there to support McCallan, to tell her there was no reason a woman couldn't become the foremost genetic biologist in the world, and the security that another loved one in McCallan's life would not be taken away. McCallan spent the rest of the day at the Fifth Avenue apartment, drinking tea, crying, and squeezing Nana's hand in an effort to communicate to her that she would be there for her now. Cedric had been leaving the two of them alone, but finally re-entered the room. It's getting late, McAllen, and you look exhausted. I just haven't been getting a lot of sleep lately. One of my genetic simulations had me at Rockefeller most of the night. Now it seems like it's the most unimportant thing in the world. I'm so worried about Nana. Her blood pressure has been dropping as the day goes on. Which doctor has she been seeing for her heart? Dr. Ackerman. Could you give me his number? I think he still has her on the Coumadin, and I'm concerned that her medications might be causing her to have many strokes. When was her last CAT scan? I'd have to check, but within the last year, I suspect. Yeah, I'd like to know that, too, and maybe have some of the people at the university take a look at it. McAllen, why don't you spend the night here tonight? Oh, I, I should go back to my own place. It'd be nice to have you back. For old time's sake. And to be quite honest, I think I'd feel more comfortable with you here if Madame Orsel regains her lucidity. I'm sure you'd feel more comfortable being here as well. Maybe I'll just sleep in the guest room. Nana would never let me go in those rooms because she said she wanted to keep them clean for her esteemed guests. I guess I get to be the lucky guest tonight. It would be my pleasure to prepare it for you. Amelia Orsel's enormous apartment was like a tiny estate unto itself. It contained two guest rooms, which made McAllen quietly laugh at the thought that her tiny Avenue B apartment barely had enough room for her snowboard. But she was always secretly proud of some of the visitors that have stayed with the Orsil clan in their guest rooms. McAllen could remember luminaries such as Dr. Craig Venter, Madeleine Albright, Jean-Michel Cousteau, and Albert and Tipper Gore, all spending the evenings with the two Orsil women, young and old. And even as a young child, she sensed the gravity that her nana, Amelia Orsil, exuded. 
even when she was too young to truly participate in the lively discussions that always erupted over port and the end of one of Sedgwick's notoriously delectable meals, McAllen knew there was something special about her nana, that people of such importance sought out her company. A sly grin crept across McAllen's face as she entered the guest room where she remembered Laurie Anderson had taught her to play the tambourine in a surprisingly suggestive manner. The room seemed overwhelmed by the presence of an enormous mahogany four-poster bed with full canopy. It looked positively Edwardian in nature and possessed incredibly ornate carvings on each of the posts. The cloud-like mattress was stuffed tightly within the box spring and spilled out slightly around the edges. It resembled a loaf of white bread being baked in a beautiful wooden box. McAllen shut the door to the room and opened the dresser that sat to the right of the bed. Cedric had moved some of the clothes that she always kept at Nana's into the dresser. She laughed aloud when she found a calf-length pink silk nightgown that she hadn't worn in years. It always surprised her how something so light could keep her so warm, especially when her toned arms were bare but the presence of the antique four-poster bed seemed to impose a period feel in the room, and McCallum felt like a protected fairy princess, immune from the onslaughts of cell phones, blackberries, and the impending cancellation of her grant. As she slid under the smooth duvet, McCallum became easily lost in her own thoughts. Oh, man. This is nice. This mattress must have been made by Scandinavian wood elves. I think I can literally feel my spine straight. I need to come home more often. How many hours has it been since I actually was in a bed? I fell asleep on the couch after running the simulation the day before yesterday, Jeez. so... About 40 hours. Maybe. I don't want to think anymore. I just want Nana to go. Who is she calling my name She out. knew I was there in this... This episode shouldn't have come on so suddenly. Normally the signs of dementia, if that's what this is, have some warning oh, signs. Oh, shit. Where did my earring go? Damn it. Did it go behind the mattress? <clears throat> I'll never be able to get this thing up. Cedric is probably already asleep by now. He can't help me. Maybe if I just... <clears throat> Maybe it's between one of those posts and the mattress. Man, this mattress is up against the frame so tightly. Couldn't have fallen between these them. posts are beautiful, but they're creepy. All those flowers carved into the posts, they... Wait, those aren't flowers. They're tiny faces. All these years, I never noticed I can't that. tell if they're happy or in pain. Definitely creepy. I wonder if this is the same bed that was always here. God, it feels weird. Like the post is loose. I think I can turn it or spin it. <laughs> I just... McAllen turned the bedpost counterclockwise until it clicked into place. She stepped away from the bed, suddenly as the thick mattress she was lying on shuddered intensely and started to rise upwards guided by the four ornate bedposts. The mattress continued to rise upwards until it was completely contained within the ceiling of the bed. To McAllen's amazement, in place of the mattress that was just there, now lay a spiral staircase with a red velvet runner heading downwards. Wrought iron wall sconces suddenly illuminated and seemed to spiral down the staircase wall. McAllen instinctively looked to the bedroom door to see if someone would be bursting in to investigate the alien mechanical sounds coming from an antique bedroom. But no one did. The red velvet stairs spiraled downwards into the shadows cast by the flickering wall lamps. And then she saw it glittering. Her earring waiting for her on the last step. There you are. What the hell is this? There's a damn staircase hidden under my grandmother's bed. McAllen tentatively walked down the velvet staircase, shivering slightly. It wrapped around twice, seemingly descending more than one story. The staircase ended abruptly at a tufted leather door, 
with an oversized silver handle. The handle had three whales spiraled together and was so large that McAllen needed two hands to push it down. She entered the room and was utterly shocked by what she saw. The door opened into a single room with no windows and no other doors. The only object in the entire room was a seven-foot metallic sphere. The sphere was dark gray, but seemed to shimmer surprisingly brightly when McCallum moved towards it, allowing the lamp light of the staircase to reflect against it. There were no seams or cracks on any part of its surface. The only feature on its entire body was a small slot and a single word engraved above it. Leviathan. to the Leviathan Chronicles. The Leviathan Chronicles was written and created by Christoph Lepupka, produced by Robin Shaw, produced and musical composition by Luke Allen, directed by Nobi Nakanishi. For a full list of cast and crew, or to purchase the ad-free director's cut, go to leviathanchronicles.com. Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for listening. To discover more podcasts set in the Leviathan universe, go to leviathanaudioproductions.com or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. Leviathan Audio Production Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.